As the last of the parents wend their way down from dropping their kids off, uh, we're going to make a start. So it's a beautiful day today, isn't it? Two beautiful days in a row. Let's hope that this English summer runs on and on and on for months and months. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? Strange days that we're, we're living in. So we're living in days, challenging days in terms of world conflicts. We're still having the impact of COVID. Uh, Tim was supposed to be preaching this morning. I got a, a message uh, about nine o'clock on Friday morning saying that he wouldn't be able to do it. He's testing positive again. Um, uh, we're living in days of great uncertainty, a challenge. But this morning we come to one who is our rock. As we've been focusing on this morning, we come to the rock of ages, the God who is unchangeable, unchanging, always the same. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we're going to worship him as we unpack God's word together. And we're going to look at a passage from Exodus chapter 12. I'm going to read a few verses to set the scene. Uh, it will come behind me on the screen. Today's uh, title is People, a People God Passed Over. And this is what it says in Exodus chapter 12, the first seven verses. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month is to, the be, is to be the beginning of months for you. It is the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, they must each select an animal of the flock according to their uh, uh, father's families, one animal per family. If the household is too small for a whole animal, that person and the neighbor nearest his house are to select one based on the combined number of people. You should apportion the animal according to what each will eat. You must have an unblemished animal, a year-old male. You may take it from either the sheep or the goats. You are to keep it until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel will slaughter the animals at twilight. They must take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses where they eat them. The passage that we're going to look at this morning is challenging and troubles many people. We've been looking in recent weeks about the plagues God brings on Egypt because Pharaoh won't let God's pe people go. And here we come to the last terrible sign as God delivers his people out of Egypt. The final judgment of God results in all the firstborn male children and animals being struck down. Only those who sought God's protection by sacrificing a male lamb and putting its blood on the doorposts and lintels would be saved. This provokes really difficult questions. What sort of God kills innocent children? 
Why should we give time to contemplating something so barbaric on Mother's Day? Why would anyone worship a God who does this? Today, I want to help us get to grips with some of these questions as we look at this passage. And as we do, I am confident that our hearts are going to be stirred to worship. We're watching in the Ukraine at the moment. This is the closest we have come to World War III in my lifetime. Nothing justifies the atrocities that we're seeing. But we do need to properly understand what's happening and why it's happening. And it's only as we do that that we can respond in a way that doesn't make this situation worse. And we need to approach this passage in exactly the same way. If we want to understand what's really going on and how it is relevant to us today. And the first thing I want us to see is this, is that God has a bigger plan. In verse 12 of chapter 12, it says this. God says, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both people and animals. I am the Lord. I will execute judgments against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments against all the gods of Egypt. We need to understand what's going on here. God's people have experienced 400 years of brutal slavery in Egypt. But behind the scenes, there is a greater and bigger war being waged. And it's the story that the Bible tells from beginning to end, from the very first pages to the very last pages of the Bible. God created the universe and everything in it. He created our world. He created it beautiful and complex. And God loved it. He made every living being, culminating in him, creating us, men and women, in his own image, we're told. Genesis chapter 3 tells us how we ruined God's beautiful and harmonious world. It tells how the devil in the form of a snake infiltrates into God's paradise and tempts Adam and Eve to stop trusting God. And in that moment, sin, which in its essence is rebellion against the God who created us, sin entered human experience. Sin is still infecting the whole human race. It is rife through our world today. Instead of worshipping God, we now worship all sorts of other things. The Egyptians that we're reading about were no different. They had made gods of everything. They worshipped snakes. 
They worshipped the river Nile. They worshipped animals like frogs. And through the previous nine plagues, God had been dealing with these so-called gods of Egypt. He was exposing them for what they really were and showing that he was the one true God. You see, despite God blessing us and giving us life and giving us homes and families and jobs, we too easily make gods of the things that he gives us. We make gods of our education. We make gods of the job that we have. We make gods of our home, of our possessions, our money, relationships. We even make gods of our children. See, here's the point. Whilst God gives us everything to richly enjoy, ultimately, they belong to him. He is the God of the heavens and the earth. Everything belongs to God, even our very lives. And one day, he will hold us to account for what we have done with the life that he has given us. You see, our ability to earn money and wealth, we're told in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 19 comes from him. All that we have belongs to him. We're simply stewards of all he gives us. If we have friends and family, they are the gift of God to us. If we have children, if we've had the privilege of having children, of bringing them up to know God... We must know they are not ours. We are merely stewards of them for a short period. It is not long before they fly the nest. No one and no thing should replace God at the very center of our lives. We are created to worship God. That's what the Westminster Confession says. We are made to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And he expects us to do that by us putting him first in our lives at every turn. And we do that by practically demonstrating it, by giving the good things that he has given us back to him. We lay them before him. That is why when God blesses us with wealth, we gladly give him the first fruits, the best of what we have. If you do not bless God with the good things he's given you, they are a God to you. You are not worshipping the real God. We demonstrate our worship of God by giving him of the best of our time, the best of our efforts, the best of our money. We lay our children before him and pray for them and trust that he will work in their lives. It's why when we come on a Sunday to gather together to worship, we give him the best of our worship, whatever we feel like, whatever's been going on in our week, because he deserves it. Right from the very beginning, God's great plan has been to restore us to relationship with himself by dealing with our sin, by dealing with the other gods that we have through what his son Jesus does on the cross. 
And only as we understand God's bigger plan can we understand God's judgment and put it in context. In chapter 4 of Exodus, it says this, verse 22 and 23, Moses, God tells Moses, you will say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refused to let him go. Look, I'm about to kill your firstborn son. We want justice for the people of Ukraine. We're shocked by the atrocities that we see unfolding in that part of the world. We want the perpetrators to be punished and get a taste of their own medicine. There's something inside most of us that craves for justice to be done. Bizarrely, even people who uh, refuse to worship God still seem to blame God when they say things like, clearly God doesn't care if things like this are happening in the world. And at the same time that we want justice, we all want and hope that God will show us mercy. Behind our inconsistency is the fact that most of us want to worship a tame God of our own making. Terry Virgo says this. He says, this account provides a shocking wake-up call to us. God is altogether other than us. We are to be a people who worship the God of the Bible. The awesome, holy creator God, who is eternal, invisible, immortal, the only God. The one whose wisdom is beyond our understanding, whose ways are beyond tracing out. The God who is all-powerful. This God will truck no rival. He is jealous for our praise and our worship. Listen what he says to his people in Jeremiah chapter 2, verses, verse 11 and 12. God's people are worshipping other gods. They're worshipping idols. And this is what God says. Has a nation ever exchanged its gods? Yet my people have exchanged their glory for useless idols. Be appalled at this heavens. Be shocked by and utterly desolated. Do you catch something of the heart of God for our worship? He doesn't need our worship. He deserves our worship. You see, it's easy to miss what's been going on as we contemplate God's judgment. Pharaoh was a despot. He's brutalized a nation. He's enslaved them. He's worked them ruthlessly. So much so their lives are bitter, we're told. Pharaoh even resorts to genocide and orders his people to kill all the Hebrew male newborn babies by throwing them in the river Nile. And sadly, many obeyed his orders and many children died. None of this 
escaped God's gaze. God heard the cries of his people for mercy. He is so concerned, he sends Moses to deliver them. And he even tells Moses what he's going to do. Pharaoh is about to face the judgment of God. And if we're uncomfortable with the severity of this passage, we have become too conditioned to mercy and have lost sight of the God who is both just and holy. Too many worship a God who is just loving and cuddly. Listen, God hates sin. He hates injustice. He loves us, but he will hold us accountable for our sin. And this means that we are all in trouble. None of us have an excuse. We all deserve judgment. The wonderful news of the Bible is mercy triumphs over judgment. We're told in James chapter 2 verse 13. You see, when God comes down to help his people who are crying out for help, everyone, both Hebrews and Egyptians, are in trouble because God is holy. Everyone deserves judgment. But here in Exodus chapter 12, we see God's mercy at work. In verse 13, it says this. The blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. You see, God's mercy requires a sacrifice. Moses calls together the leaders of the people and tells them what they must do. The instructions are really specific. It's not any old sacrifice. It is to be a spotless, year-old male lamb. Each household must have one. And if the household was too small for a lamb on its own, they were to do it with their nearest neighbors. They had to look after the lamb for four to five days. They knew what was coming. You can imagine them saying, who's got the lamb? Where's the lamb? Who's looking after it? They didn't want to lose this lamb. This lamb was precious to them. And on the twilight of the 14th day of the month, everyone was to kill their lamb and put some of the blood using a hyssop branch on the doorposts and lintels of their houses. On the outside, and on seeing the blood, God, who had come down to rescue them, would pass over them. The holy, awesome God would pass over them and they would escape the judgment that they deserved. And during that evening, the lamb was to be roasted and eaten with bitter herbs and unleavened bread. It was to be eaten in anticipation of leaving Egypt at any moment. Nothing was to be left till morning. At midnight, God struck down all the firstborn in Egypt but all who were covered by the blood of the Lamb were saved. And in the middle of the night, Pharaoh tells Moses, take them out, and they leave Egypt. You see, God provides a way out. 
for the Hebrews and any Egyptians who would listen. We're told a great crowd left Egypt with the Israelites, including Egyptians who we take to have come and trust in God. God's mercy is open to all who will obey him. God wants no one to perish, but they must be covered by the blood of the Lamb. All of this was a great foreshadowing of God delivering men and women of every age and every generation, of setting them free of their sin and their rebellion, and reversing the damage done in the Garden of Eden. The devil, every demonic power, and every man-made God would be defeated. Yet a sacrifice was still needed to save us from God's righteous judgment. And in his great love and mercy, God sent the perfect lamb to deal with our sin once and for all. He gave his precious son, Jesus. We're told John, in his gospel, verse 29 of the first chapter, he says of Jesus, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He recognized that Jesus was the Lamb of God. Jesus lived the perfect life, we read in Hebrews chapter 4. He was perfect in every way. He never sinned. God provided a Lamb. God provided the one who would deliver us. God provided the blood that would cover us and would protect us. Jesus' blood was spilt on a wooden Roman cross for us. His blood spilt for us. And in the shadow of the cross, we are passed over. We don't face judgment, we receive mercy. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin, we're told. But if we put our trust in Jesus, God passes over and we are set free. Only he can protect us from death. That can be your experience if it's not been today. You can give your life to Jesus Christ and you can know the protection that only he can provide. Protection for this life and eternity. You will be able to stand in the presence of a holy God knowing that your sins are forgiven. As we draw to a close, I want you to imagine that evening. You imagine being in those homes. You imagine how anxious and fearful some of them felt. What did they say we had to do? Did you, did you listen properly? What, what, did we, what we were told to do? The blood, blood, on, on, blood of the lamb on the doorpost. Are you sure you got that right? When you went outside and you put blood on the doorpost, did you put plenty? Are you sure that God's going to see the blood that you put there? Go on, quick. Go and have a look. Go and check. Make sure that there's blood. Make sure that it's visible. I wonder how many doors opened during that evening just to check and gaze on the blood. 
See, the point is this. The blood wasn't there for them to gaze on. The blood was there for God to see. It wasn't there for their comfort. It was there for their deliverance. Maybe today you, in these days, you find yourself anxious. Does God love me? Maybe you feel that you've let him down. Maybe you feel fearful in God's presence. Maybe you feel guilty. Maybe you feel you have let him down so badly that you don't think he could ever forgive you. Does God love me? Maybe that's something that you often ask. Will he pass over my sin? Our assurance is the blood of Jesus spilt on the cross for us. I remember many years ago, I had let God down so badly. I didn't, I wasn't sure God could ever forgive me. And then I came to realize that the blood of Jesus shed on the cross covered me. And God passed over my sin. This verse came to mean such a lot to me in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living God. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus' blood is sufficient for each and every one of us, however bad you feel you've been. If you are battling with assurance of your salvation today, know this. Jesus' blood is sufficient. Nothing else needs to be done. You trust the blood. This was the first time these people had been called a community. This is the first time we find them being called a community of people. You see, these people were all saved together as a community. They were all a people who God had passed over together. The great Methodist preacher of the 18th century, John Wesley, once said, the Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. That's why we gather together to worship, because we share a common bond. We are covered by the blood of Jesus. We are inextricably linked together. We are in Christ. He is the head and we are his body. We are a community of people whom God dwells in by his spirit. We are one body. We must make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We're told in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. We are a community marked by the blood. We're a community marked by forgiveness. That means that we need to be those who readily forgive others. This is a big battleground. I feel it's a battleground for many here. You don't know, Steve, what they did to me. You don't know how they hurt me. You don't know what they did. I want to tell you, you were the one in prison because you won't forgive. 
And we need to be a people who forgive because God has freely forgiven us. Jesus, I'm going to finish with this, tells a parable in Matthew chapter 18 of an unforgiving servant. And he tells of a a servant who owes his master and the, the sum is massive. It is the equivalent of billions and billions and billions of pounds in today's money. And he clearly can't pay. And the master says, right, throw him in prison until the debt is paid. And he cries out for mercy. He says, be merciful to me. And the the master shows him mercy. And he is forgiven. He's released from the debt. And then he goes, and as he leaves the master's presence, he goes and finds a servant who owes him literally a couple of months' wages. Someone else, a peer who owes him money and and he, and he pursues it, and it says that he reaches out and he goes to choke him. He's forcing the money out of him, and he's brutalizing him. And the other servants look on and think, what is going on? He has just been forgiven, and what's he doing? And they go to the master, and they say, Master, do you see what's going on? And the punchline of this is, is that we are to be those who forgive freely because we've been forgiven. How dare we not forgive those who hurt us? In Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32, we're commanded to do this. We're to forgive one another just as God forgave you in Christ. And as we come to a close this morning, I want you to know that you are covered by the blood of the Lamb. You're covered by the blood of Jesus. The blood shed on the cross for you is sufficient for you to be forgiven, the slate to be wiped clean, your past to be dealt with, your future to be secure. And that means that you need to walk in forgiveness. Can I ask the band to come back on stage? And I'd love us just in this moment just to lay our hearts open before God and allow him to speak to us. What's God saying to you this morning? Angie's going to lead us in a time of response in a moment. But just be considering, what's God saying to me? Is there something you're battling with? Are you struggling with assurance that God has forgiven you? Do you need to come again and refresh yourself in the wonder that you are a forgiven person? That God has wiped the slate clean, that the blood of Jesus covers you? Do you need to forgive others? Do you need to let other people go because God has forgiven you? What's God saying to you this morning? Be open to respond to him.